All right, got a, got a smaller group today. Yeah, that's great. The teachers are excited, yeah. <laughs> Very good. All right, well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, we're going to start reading in verse 13 today. As we continue to make our way through Mark, uh, we're in this last part of the gospel which deals with the last days of Jesus' life. This is just a few days before the crucifixion. He's in Jerusalem and the, the religious leaders are coming at him from all angles, basically trying to accuse him of usurping authority that's not his, and he's responding in uh, a really brilliant and wise way. Uh, today we're going to broaden our focus a little bit and just think in general about God's claim on our lives. What claim does God make and why and how should we respond? So let's look at verse 13. And they sent uh, to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and he died and left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength... And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered 
wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. A few weeks ago, my uh, oldest son, Asher, and I were up late one night putting together the parts of a computer. Uh, Asher uh, likes computers and technology, and uh, he's been uh, saving up his money a little bit at a time to buy the different parts of a gaming computer. And I was helping him one night put it all together so that it would work. And it did work, I'm pleased to announce. And uh, we were up, though, pretty late, maybe past midnight. I can't remember. But it was close, probably close to midnight when we were interrupted by a whimpering sound. And, you know, we kind of both stopped and wondered what was going on. And my first thought was Xander, uh, because he's usually the one who's getting out of bed at that time, had a bad dream or something, whimpering, crying. But we quickly realized that the sound was not coming from inside the house, but outside the house. And so Asher and I went to the front porch. It was a cold night, raining really hard because a cold front was coming in. And when we got on the porch, there was a tiny little miniature poodle soaking wet, shivering, whimpering, and trying with everything within him to get inside the house. Now, many of y'all know my relationship to canines, (laughs) right? I wouldn't call it hatred. I would just call it, uh, there's tension between us. We don't always see eye to eye. And so... In that moment, I knew my compassion was not going to be where it needed to be, and so I went and woke up Stacy, because <laughs> she loves dogs, very compassionate person uh, in many ways, and so she got a dry, nice towel, and we, we dried off the dog and wrapped the dog up in a warm towel and placed him in the big planter we have on our front porch, which is empty right now, and he slept there all night long in this towel uh, into the next day, and we're making plans. We named him Scruff. And we're making plans that, you know, if we don't find the owner, we'll keep him. But we got to find the owner. And so we we decided we're going to put something out on Facebook. Before we could do that, the dog was gone. Just just disappeared. He just walked away. Two hours later, the Mulberry Public Library posted a picture of this same dog. Because he had apparently wandered down the hill, up the street to the library over here. They found him, whimpering again. The picture was up for less than an hour. And Scruff's owners came forward and claimed Scruff back into the home where he belonged. Much to my children's sadness and much to my great thanksgiving (laughs) and delight. Praise the Lord, right? We dodged a bullet. We've all been here, right? Where we've found something that wasn't ours. It could have been a living thing like scruff, or it could have been not a living thing, an inanimate thing. We all know what to do when we find somebody else's stuff. you got to give people a chance. you got to announce what you found, and you got to give them time. And when somebody comes with a rightful claim of ownership, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to keep it or claim it? No. Are you supposed to get into a fight over it? No. You're supposed to take it, lift it back up to that person, and hand it over. Well, that's what this passage is about. Three groups of people come up to Jesus to try to trap him in his words. And each time Jesus answers them wisely by pressing on them the great claim of God over our lives. He does it really well there in verse 17, which will kind of become our theme verse tonight. If you look at verse 17 again, 
Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to God the things that are God's. And that, that's the theme verse. God rightfully claims ownership over everything we are. And because of that, we have the duty of rendering, which means give back or lift up. We have to lift up our lives back into his hands. If you'll look at your bulletin, we're going to see three things about this claim this morning. Uh, we're not going to be able to cover every detail in the passage. There's way too many details, but I'm going to trace this theme out. Uh, first, we're going to see in verses 13 to 17, the claim is stated by Jesus. Secondly, we're going to see in verses 18 to 27, the claim is resisted by us. And then lastly, we're going to see in verses 28 to 34, the claim is answered by somebody. All right, let's think about that together. First of all, the claim is stated. Look there at verse uh, 13 to 17. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians who come to Jesus with a question about taxes. Uh, maybe it was tax season in the spring there, just like it is in the spring here. And taxes were on everybody's mind, especially this particular tax, which Caesar had required of all his subjects. And basically it was called the poll tax. And it went like this. If you're a person breathing within the Roman Empire, you owe Caesar $100 a head every year. And so if you're a family of six, how much do you owe? The equivalent of $600, which back then would have been six days wages for the average person. Uh, one, one day's wage for every person to Caesar. Now this was a debate among the Jews because the Jews were very religious. They followed the Old Testament. They believed in the one true God. And Caesar clearly did not. He did not run his empire in a godly way. He was a pagan man. In fact, he actually encouraged people to worship himself. Uh, if you were to take up a Roman denarius, which Jesus does here, uh, somebody brings him the coin, which is called a denarius, worth one day's wages. Uh, we have some of those coins in museums today. There was a profile picture of Caesar and in bold letters, all caps, which we know today means what? All caps. Somebody's yelling at you. Somebody is trying to impress something on you very strongly. It says in all caps, Caesar, the divine one. That's a big claim. And so among the Jews, these religious people who followed the one true God, they thought, should we be giving money to that dude? Is that a breach of faith? And yet if we don't, we're going to end up getting arrested and possibly even killed and crucified. So they felt like they were caught between a rock and a hard place. And so they think, aha, we'll catch Jesus between that rock and hard place. Let's ask him. Let's ask him in the temple. Let's ask him in public. And no matter how Jesus answers, he's going to be in trouble with somebody. If Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, who's going to be mad at him? The Jews, especially the really religious committed Jews. If he says, on the other hand, no, don't pay the taxes to that pagan man, who's mad at him? The Romans who stand to benefit financially from the tax. They think they've got him. Can you imagine, like, finally, they, they, they've thought a long time about this question. And they think, finally, they're going to get Jesus in their trap. What does Jesus do? Brilliant. Bring me a coin. Look at the coin. Whose likeness is on the coin? Caesar's. Well, must belong to Caesar then because his picture's on it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But in your giving to Caesar, 
those little tiny trinkets that you owe him, make sure you give to God what you owe God. Now let's think about the logic of Jesus here. Caesar has a claim on some of their money, according to Jesus, because Caesar's picture's on the money. What is God's picture on? Your face. (laughs) Yourself. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? God made humanity, male and female, in his own image and likeness. By the way, the very same word used here as used in Genesis 1 and 2 in Greek, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The image of God and the image of Caesar. Caesar's is on just money. It's just money at the end of the day. And so because Caesar is an authority, we do owe him taxes, just like we always owe authorities taxes. But we don't owe them our souls. We don't owe them ourselves. We only owe one ourselves, God, because it's on us that God has stamped his image forever. It's what gives human beings dignity. It gives us our value. It gives us our worth. Not just us, but everybody. Every human being shares in the image of God. But it's also the proof that a human being owes everything they are back to God. It is rightfully his and a good thing that we find ourselves under his care. Let's imagine for a moment uh, that we're in the position of little scruff that I was telling you about who got lost that night. Let's imagine his owners are good dog owners. I don't know them. They apparently live somewhere in Mulberry, so they may be watching. You're a good dog owner. We love you. Um, But imagine they are good dog owners. Was Scruff, should Scruff, if he could think and talk, should he be disappointed that he made his way back to his owner's house? Should he be hesitant? Should he prefer shivering in the driving wind over being on the lap of his master? Should he care more about searching for his own food by random chance than by being fed three square meals a day in the warmth of a house? Of course not. Being owned, if it's a good owner, is actually not a bad thing at all. It actually brings a stability to our lives that we could not get in any other way. Just like scruff. Same is true of us. We are stamped by God. It is a good thing to be underneath his care. He's proven it because he made everything that exists. He's proven it because he's given, you, he's given you everything you've ever had. He's proven it by giving you literally thousands of words that express his love for you. And the links that he went to win you back to himself when you wandered away. And so what a joy it is, or should be to be returned back to the ownership of God. And yet, isn't it true, y'all? Don't we tend to want to lift up our hearts to everything but God? Just that very word, render. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. It tends to be that we render to Caesar ourselves and just give God our money. You know, we, we give God our leftovers, but we give our soul to created things. Let me, let me pick an example just to illustrate this. And I'll pick one that's good. I won't use Caesar as an example because, you know, maybe there are, there are those in here who, who would know that giving your heart to the government is not a good thing just by, by instinct. But how about this? What happens when a person gives their whole heart and self to family? 
That's a good thing, right? That's, that's something all of us believe is a good thing. Is it good to give your whole life, your whole heart, your whole soul, all that you are to your marriage, to your children? Is that good? What does that do to a person? Well, here's what it does. You lift your heart up to your marriage, thinking that you're going to get satisfaction from it that you can only really get from God, and disappointment inevitably comes back in return because your spouse cannot fill the shoes of God, right? Your spouse is wonderful, hopefully, and hopefully you love your marriage, but she or he cannot fill the shoes of God. And so disappointment comes. Your children, as wonderful as they are, cannot fill the shoes of God. They can't make you proud enough. They can't do good enough. They can't love you enough and express their love and appreciation for you enough to fill the hole that is only to be filled by God. And so disappointment will come, which will lead to all the things that disappointment leads to. Anger, fear, pride, worry, doubt, unbelief, all those things. All the sources of evil in the world come from humans lifting their hearts to things that aren't God. Think about it the other way. When we do lift our heart to God, when we render to God those things that are God's, what happens in return? Fulfillment. Satisfaction. Because in, there is nothing that we need that's not found in God. There's no good that the human heart can long for that is not satisfied in what is there in God and what he's done for us. And so when you lift your heart to God, you will not go away disappointed. Not ever. It'll be fulfillment, which gives rise to peace, joy, love, hope, the source of all that is good in the world or potentially good in the world. Do you see that? It's a big difference. Jesus is saying, render to God what belongs to God. Yes, there is, there is something that you owe your family. I'm not saying you should neglect your family. Certainly not. You owe them a great deal, but you don't owe them your soul. You owe the government something, but not your soul. You owe your nation something, but not your soul. You only owe your soul to one. And only he will return that investment with satisfaction. The words of Jesus. The claim stated. Now let's look secondly uh, at verses 18 to 27, the claim resisted. Because you hear that and you think, well, then why is it that all of us struggle with this so mightily? Why, even, even those of us who are Christians, who are bought by Jesus' love, who are made new and born again by the Spirit, we still struggle, don't we, to offer up everything we have to God. It's still a temptation to give it to all these other things. Why? Well, of course, the short answer is sin, but I want to give you a little deeper perspective on that. The Sadducees came up to Jesus, um, and they ask another question in verse 18. Now, the Sadducees, uh, when I was a kid in Sunday school, they used to say, here's how you know who the Sadducees were. They were sad, you see. Right? They were sad, you see. Why were they sad? Because, well, it says there in verse 18, they did not believe there was going to be a resurrection. 
This is a kind of an amazing thing. Uh, these were people who were Jewish. They were religious. In fact, they were the elite of the society, typically. It was the rich rulers who were the Sadducees. But they had edited their Bible to such a degree that they cut out everything they couldn't explain. Like angels and demons and resurrection and life after death and souls. And they boiled it down to this. The Bible just says, be good in this life and God will bless you with things in this life and then that's it. And so they were sad, you see. Because as Paul says in um, the book of um, Romans... Uh, or excuse me, the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, that if we only have hope in this life, some of y'all can finish it, we're of all people the most to be pitied. Uh, We're a pitiful bunch of folks, in other words. If all the hope we have is boiled up in this short lifespan that we have on earth. But that's what the Sadducees thought. And so they said, Jesus, we're going to trap you by mocking your beliefs. And so they said, Jesus, imagine there's a a woman who marries a brother, and she doesn't have any kids, so his brother marries her, and then his brother and his brother, all seven brothers marry this woman, and none of them have kids, and then they all die. In this resurrection that you say is going to happen, you can kind of hear their sarcasm in it, when everybody rises from the dead, hmm, I bet that's going to happen, Who is she going to be married to? Solve that one, Jesus. I love Jesus' answer. Because it really exposes not only why they had resisted God's claims, but why we do too when we do. Look at the verse 24. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Haven't you read in the Bible how in the resurrection in the new heavens and new earth, humanity is going to be lifted up into glory with the angels? And so the current arrangements on earth about marriage and family and babies and all the rest is going to be transcended. We're going to reach the goal of all of that. Now, if you want to ask me, am I going to know my spouse in heaven and all that kind of stuff? Ask me later. I don't want to get off on that distraction. But the point being, marriage and its purpose will have been fulfilled completely when the resurrection comes, according to Jesus. Haven't you read that, he said? And don't you know, by the way, that God, when he described himself to Moses in Exodus 3, described himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am, not the great I was... And so that means that God is the God even of those who have already died physically because they still live spiritually and one day will be raised from the dead. And then he sums it up, verse 27, with a brilliant statement. You are quite wrong. You are very, very wrong. You've missed the whole point. Why? Because you have not known what you ought to have known. Why do I resist the claim of God on my life? Why do I offer up my heart to family and money and pleasure and all those things rather than God? Because I have been willfully ignorant of the things that God has freely shown me. 
Sin affects how I think. A good illustration that a lot of people use is, imagine I had a glass of water up here that was perfectly clear. And imagine me taking a dropper of red food coloring and dropping a couple drops in there. What happens? At first, it's just two red drops, and you can kind of see them fall. But as they fall, they start to break apart into other drops and spread. And then I I walk away for 30 minutes and come back, and what has happened? It's a red glass. There's no clear water left. It's all permeated with the red dye. The illustration says that's what sin's like. Sin is a poison, a drop of poison that drops into the life of people made in the image of God and it begins to spoil and poison every part of who we are. There's not a single part of us that is not affected by sin. And that includes the way I think, the way I see the world, the way I evaluate life. The Sadducees had misevaluated life because they did not pay sufficient attention to the scriptures and they did not take into account the power of God which the scriptures proclaim. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are going to have this fixed in our lives, if we're going to have our hearts renewed, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the Bible says. Which means you have got to know the scriptures. Uh, There is a reason God gave us a book, folks. He wanted it written down for the ages. He didn't want it to be changed or altered. And it's been the same for the thousands of years that it has existed. He wanted it accessible to people so that all might read it or have it read to them one way or the other so that they might learn the things that he so desperately wants us to know and that we so desperately need to know. And this goes, by the way, even for the details of the Bible. I know, you know, we live in a time where we're just really, we're allergic to two things that we ought not to be allergic to. We're really allergic to truth claims in general, which kind of makes for a pretty difficult society, if we're honest, right? I mean, how can we have a society for very long if we don't accept that there are truths that everyone needs to accept? They're not just your personal truth. They're the truth, right? We have to have that. Well, the Bible makes a ton of those kinds of claims. It's not just truth for me. It's truth for us. It's truth for the world. We ought not to be allergic to that. But we're also allergic today to detailed arguments, detailed reasoning. We we just want it to be easy. Give it to me in a sentence. Better yet, give it to me in a picture. Or I don't even have to read it. Act it out for me. We're kind of lazy when it comes to reasoning. And yet God has given us a very tightly reasoned book. That if you pay attention to its details, it will teach you something about life that you can't learn any other way. In fact, it will teach you something about the power of God. The power of God is necessary for all of life. Everything is upheld by his power. You and I need his power in order to even understand and follow out the scriptures. And so, the, and so Jesus' accusation to the Sadducees really is an accusation to our society and to us. We need to listen to it. We resist the claims of God because we are willfully ignorant of his claims. 
willfully ignorant, not because we should be ignorant, but because we've chosen not to take up the Bible and we've chosen not to factor in the power of God. My question this morning is not, does your heart resist submitting everything to God? I know the answer to that one is a resounding yes from every one of us. Here's my question. Are you resisting your resistance? Are you fighting back using the scriptures and using the power of God? That leads us to our last thing. The claim is answered finally by somebody. If you look at verses 28 to 34, a singular scribe now comes up to Jesus uh, and it says he had already recognized the wisdom of Jesus' answers. And so he asks him what seems to be, and I don't think there's any reason to think this is an insincere question. In fact, if you look down at verse 34, Jesus has a mutual respect with this man. He, he hears the man answer wisely, it says. So this is a guy who kind of gets it. In fact, he has the right answer to his own question. He asks Jesus, what's the most important commandment of all? Of all the things the Bible says, Jesus, what's the most important thing it tells us to do? And Jesus quotes from what we read earlier. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, all that you are. Give everything that you are back to God because you love him. And the second from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself because in your neighbor you recognize the same image of the same God stamped on them that's stamped on you and so give them the love and respect that you know you deserve. Give it to them. Those are the two things. He says those are what all the Bible depends on and hangs on. The man agrees. You're right, teacher. For of course God is one, and because God is one, we owe him everything. It's better than all the sacrifices in the world. We could sacrifice every cow on the planet to God, and it would not be the same as simply lifting up your whole life to him in love. And Jesus, it says, looked at him, he saw him, that he answered wisely, and he said to him something extraordinarily interesting. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Huh. That's kind of a backhanded compliment. Wouldn't you say? Have you ever had someone say to you, nice try? Good try. Close, but no cigar. You're on the doorstep, but you're not inside the door. You're at the border as a refugee, but you haven't crossed over the border and become a citizen of the country. I mean, this is a backhanded compliment. He's saying, good job, but you're just close. You're not in yet. You're close. Now, think, you've got to think about that. This is a big deal. This man knows the right answers. He knows what he's supposed to do. And based on the dialogue, it seems like the man actually wants to do it. His heart is warm towards God. And yet Jesus says, but you're not in. You're only close to being in. Why would he say that? Psalm 15 asks the question, 
Who can ascend the hill of the Lord to live with him? Who can live with God? Answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right, who speaks the truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up any reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his hurt and doesn't change, who lends his money without interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, he who loves the Lord is God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, all his strength, and who loves every neighbor exactly as he loves himself in thought, word, and deed. Who can live with God? How many people out of 10? Zero. Psalm 24 asks the same question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? It gives the same answer. The perfect person. Only a perfect man can come and live with God. Only a perfect person can go to heaven. But then it says, Lift up your head, O gates, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Who gets to live with God? The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Paul in Romans 3, no human being will be justified by the works of the law. No person will get in good God's good graces or into heaven because of what they have done. Because everyone has fallen short of God's glory. But we will be justified by Jesus doing everything as God has required. He's the king of glory. That's why this man was not in the kingdom but only close to it. To simply know what you're supposed to do and to want to do it and to try to do it will not get you in the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough. For the simple reason that you'll never be able and have never actually done it. But when Jesus came into the world, he did it with absolute perfection. A symphony of love was offered up from his life to his Father in heaven. So that when he comes to heaven, the, the, the gates swing wide and he is let in and he gets to live at God's right hand forever. And when you and I become believers, guess what? He says, they're with me. Let them in. Not let them in because, man, how good have they been? Wow, they know the right answers and they do them. No, they're with me. They are in because their lives are covered with my righteousness. My death on the cross has washed them of their sins. My perfect life covers them so that they're qualified to come in. You are close to the kingdom but not in because you haven't yet admitted that you cannot be good enough for God. And so you must cling to Jesus. And only to Jesus. You're close but not in the kingdom because you haven't yet realized that to fulfill this desire of your heart to actually be a person who loves God and neighbor, you need the power of God working in you to make you able to do that. Do you realize that this morning? I mean, to get more than just close to the kingdom to in the kingdom, you got to see that. You will not be able to keep God's law. If you think you can, it's because you haven't paid attention to what God's law is asking of you. And I just humbly advise you to go look at it again. 
Consider it again. It's more than you can give. But imagine if you had Jesus Christ living in you. Imagine if the Holy Spirit wrote the law on your heart. Imagine if the love that God the Father has for Jesus, his son, was shared with you so that you love Jesus just as much because his love was in you. Imagine that. Okay, then, I mean, what the Bible says in Romans 8 can become true. God has done what the law couldn't do because it was weak through our sinfulness. He did it by sending his son for our sins to condemn sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law... The righteous requirement of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, might be fulfilled in us who don't walk after the flesh but after the spirit. Who learn how to live in the spiritual power of Christ in me. The spiritual freedom of Christ for me. The spiritual joy and exhilaration of me with Christ. What a beautiful thing that he looks at his father and says, he's with me. Let him in. And the father listens. Because here's a perfect one who deserves to dwell with God. This morning, are you close to God's kingdom or are you in it? Are you close or are you in it? Do you feel like a puppy shivering in the driving wind on the porch of the kingdom? Well, there is only one way in. One door. But if you believe in Jesus Christ and learn that you can only answer God's claim because he answered it for you and because he commits to live in you, that door will open really wide for you. God claims all that we are. We resist it because we just haven't been paying attention to God. But oh, he has paid attention to us. And he sent his son to be the one and only one who has ever answered God's claim in human flesh. Praise be his name. Amen.